Hello, Spy Talk listeners. Your hosts are off this week for the July 4th holiday. Please enjoy this previously released episode. Expect a fresh new episode on July 13th. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Well, I suspect that virtually everyone listening today fondly remembers the Americans, the gripping spy drama about an undercover KGB couple living near Washington, D.C., near the end of the Cold War that ran for six seasons on the FX network. One of the show's hallmarks was how it humanized the Soviet spies when they weren't creating mayhem for Mother Russia, they were, well, just folks. In a climactic scene in the final season, here's the KGB man, played by Matthew Reese, trying to explain his duplicity to the outraged FBI agent he'd befriended. We had a job to do. You were my best friend. You were mine, too. I never wanted to lie to you. Stan, what else could I do? You moved in next to me. I was terrified. And then we ended up as friends. Friends? You made my life a joke. You were my only friend in my, in my whole shitty life. For all these years, my life was the joke, not yours. Such pathos, well, We happen to have the creator and principal writer of The Americans, Joseph Weisberg, with us today. We'll talk some about that show, but also a new book he's written that's drawn outrage and even mockery from former CIA officials. But first, we have something new on the changing shape of threats to American democracy. Gene? Jeff, what happened at the Capitol one year ago still echoes. The violent takeover of the Capitol and the attempt to halt the certification of the presidential election brought into bold relief the profound schisms in our society and highlighted, for those who hadn't seen, the growing power and influence of the far right. What has happened to the right-wing extremist movement in the years since? The Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab has been monitoring the online activity of groups, individuals, and movements, and has just issued a report digging into how they have adapted and evolved over the last 12 months. I spoke to its author, resident fellow, Jared Holt. By far the biggest push and change that we saw in 2021 has come in the form of decentralization. And this emphasis and you know part strategy part survival tactic to take the focus of these extremist groups off of these large national organizations and down to smaller state level regional level sometimes even local organizing groups um, has really kind of changed the game up as far as how they organize and mobilize and how people like myself 
research them and try to stay one step ahead of them. Why is this happening? Probably the biggest reason for decentralizing the way that we've seen in the last year has been, uh, you know, scrutiny from the public, from journalists, uh, from law enforcement. You know, there are all these newfound pressures on extremist movements and a administration in office that, um, you know, unlike the previous four or five years, is getting really, uh, you know, serious about it and the way they're talking about it and what they're uh, hoping to do about it. So, you know, part of it is trying to evade some of that scrutiny. And then there's also kind of a side effect benefits, whatever you would call it, that really local organizing is a, a very productive way to spend time for a lot of people who are really agenda driven. What it's do you mean? That, Give me like, an example religion. of what you're talking about. So this is like going down to the local level at school boards. I'm sure many people have heard health boards, um, you know, running for state office or, or precinct positions in a uh, political party are often things that people don't need these mega viral, super loud campaigns to be able to achieve. Um, and that kind of change, if it's replicated enough times in small places, can funnel uh, political energy upwards. Um, you know, if the counties are changing, then the state reps will change how they talk about things and think about things. And that can kind of have a domino effect upward, up the food chain. And this is something that, uh, you know, political organizers of movements past uh, have really utilized, like the evangelical right uh, almost kind of perfected this strategy, the precinct strategy. So it, that in, it helps them both kind of evade this national level scrutiny. And also uh, some groups and movements have found uh, they can be more politically effective on a smaller scale. And they're working on some different issues than they were before. A lot of it is uh, a bit of a reverberation of what we saw in 2020. Um, things like opposition to uh, racial justice. It was opposition to Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. In 2021, it was anti-critical race theory. Um, the same animating forces against uh, LGBT people uh, and a lot of opposition to uh, public safety mandates and protocols that have been introduced uh, in response to the pandemic. I was going to ask you about that, about what kind of cross-fertilization there has been between what we consider sort of the traditional extremist groups and the anti-vaxxers. Yeah, it, it you know, it kind of is mixed by region and whatnot, but generally speaking, like even among extremist groups, a lot of them don't get along very well. Um, a group like the Proud Boys and a group like the Oath Keepers, for example, uh, if you totally gave them the keys to the country and said, have at it, boys, you know, there would be like two different looking countries that would come out the other side of it. So they have these fundamental disagreements, but there are topics uh, where we've seen them set aside their differences and work together. And uh, opposition to COVID mandates or vaccines uh, is one of those topics, and it's a topic that's also uh, quite popular more broadly in conservatism, uh, which you know kind of ends up creating a larger 
playing field for them to operate in. So have the numbers of extremists on the right increased and has the demographic changed at all? It's it's kind of hard to say. As far as organized groups, I don't know that very many you know, have seen explosion in their membership or anything like that. But there's kind of a broader issue that's happening that has some folks that do the kind of work like I do, uh, scratching our head a little bit, which is, you know, definitionally extremism is something that exists outside mainstream acceptable discourse. And extremism isn't always a bad thing. Um, something that like uh, Oren Siegel at the ADL points out all the time is that at the time, like using that definition, uh, abolitionism, when it first emerged as a movement, would have been considered an extreme movement. Um, but looking back on history, we all know that was not a bad thing. So something we also saw in 2021 was kind of the rhetoric and sentiments that extremist groups use to recruit people and galvanize and, and energize people worked their way into more mainstream conservative conversation. And that is something that like somebody like myself doing extremism research has to try to square, which is like, how do you talk about these extreme ideologies when they're going mainstream? So Marjorie Taylor Greene, just deplatformed by Twitter, President Trump also deplatformed by Twitter, more effort by the social media companies overall to police some of the disinformation that's been posted on their sites. Has it made any difference at all? I think it does make a difference, um, but it's not a fix to the problem. Um, it deplatforming can be a short or medium term solution in some cases. It does effectively take away a platform, as the name suggests. So, you know, like Trump used his Twitter account to, you know, kind of keep the world on its toes and, you know, just anticipating the next crazy thing that might come down that account. Um, and that was influencing news decisions, broadcast decisions. Um, and, you know, was this like very powerful tool. So to have that tool taken away from him, you know, kind of instantly sucked him out of the national spotlight in the same way uh, that he was before the suspension. And I imagine that it, could likely have a very similar effect with Marjorie Taylor Greene. But that being said, like Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, these are symptoms of a problem. Um, they are expressions of a sentiment, of a brewing sort of anti-democratic attitude. And, you know, sometimes I worry that we focus on like individual figures too much instead of sort of what's happening more broadly. And I don't think like yanking a couple accounts down while it can sort of take some energy away in the short term, there will always be people that file in right behind them to take their place and, you know, kind of. Well, what, what about the other efforts, though, by the platforms to label information or the source of information, um, taking down certain accounts, um, not necessarily wedded to a personality, but to an issue? Does it work? I think there's kind of mixed results. Um, I haven't seen like a lot of data from platforms uh, about its efficacy. You know, they can say how many people click through, but measuring sentiment. Yeah, they don't want to share that data. Interesting. 
Yeah, I, I mean, measuring sentiment on the internet is always tough because you never know who's genuine and who's not. But yeah, but basically, I, we haven't cracked it. We haven't figured out what to do about the big flow of disinformation, misinformation, have we? Not really. I, you know, to me at least, a lot of the labeling or you know a suspension here, a suspension there, it kind of strikes me as these like reactive band aids that we're slapping on this problem. Um, when ultimately, I think part of the problem is just kind of the incentives that are built into these platforms, the outrageous, the absurd, uh, the argumentative, like that is what gets attention. And these designs are, you know, these websites to make money are designed to maximize attention on the website. So like, I don't think this will change until either that fundamental design component is changed or it's used in a way to reward other things like reward productive conversations about stuff instead of you know clickbait and outrage are the most radical people still using platforms like twitter and facebook or have they all migrated to other more subterranean channels to evade detection it's a mix they usually even if they are on these alternative platforms, will try to get their content onto the main ones at some point, just because there's so many more people on it. Like even something like Gab or Parler, which has millions of users on it, still just absolutely pales in comparison to something like Facebook. So, you know, and, and a lot of them, I don't think find it very fun to talk to an echo chamber where everybody's the same. I think part of the joy they find in social media is, is being argumentative and, and tr trolling the libs, if you will. But, um, but there has been a pretty significant migration to some of these alternative platforms that we've seen. Um, I think the clear winner of the year was Telegram. Um, after January 6th, especially after Trump was banned and you know things like QAnon were pretty cleanly like sweeped off Twitter um, exceptions apply, of course, but, uh, you know, they, there was kind of this giant game of musical chairs, uh, that was happening where different communities would go to platforms, sort of stress test them, see like, you know, how far they could push the people that ran the platform before the platform started banning people and et cetera. And they did that for a while going kind of platform to platform, some because they like gab cater to people with those ideologies, some like MeWe, I think were chosen just out of convenience because uh, it has a feature set similar to Facebook. And, but, you know, ultimately they did kind of consolidate in a few main places in alternative social media. And I think Telegram is, was sort of like by far the most influential that emerged from it. If President Trump is successful in starting his social media company, what impact do you think that's going to have? I have no idea. I mean, I imagine that there will be kind of a groundswell of migration to that platform because it's going to have so much attention and hype on it. Um, but, you know, I also think that platform is going to be subject to the same pitfalls that every other alternative social media pro uh, platform has to face eventually which is like, one is the moderation problem. Like, what do you do when the Nazis show up? Because they will show up and they will, you know, see, 
test you and see what you do. Uh, there's the scale and functionality. A lot of uh, alternative social media platforms simply just don't have the capacity to like work really well with lots of users. Um, they're not pulling like top design talent or top coding talent. Um, so it's, you know, kind of what I am anticipating likely happening with that is it comes out in some form. It works kind of, maybe it doesn't, but I can definitely imagine a situation where a Trump 2024 campaign is harvesting data from the people who sign up on that site and then are using it for uh, election goals in 2022 and 2024. People have been charged in connection with uh, January 6th. Is that legal action, as far as you can see, having any impact on people? Are they um, choosing not to advocate violence, let's say, or engage in it uh, because because they're worried about about the legal ramifications? I definitely think that the sort of tsunami of legal action, whether it's arrests, lawsuits, et cetera, that have come out of January 6th or as a result of January 6th, uh, has definitely had a major effect on extremist movements and groups' willingness to speak specifically and openly about their intentions. Um, something that really kind of characterized the year in extremism in 2021 is just deep-rooted fundamental paranoia, uh, believe that the DOJ or the FBI or the NSA or whatever was, you know, just around the corner or right on top of them. So they had to be very uh, careful. You know, even major events that took place in D.C., like the September 18th uh, Justice for J6 rally, a Patriot Front uh, flash demonstration, uh, that occurred in December. A lot of the audience, you know, in theory for that kind of content or that kind of organizing is having these sort of reflexive impulses to label anything a little bit like too pronounced and forward uh, out in the real world as like some sort of federal sting operation. And that's really discouraged people from trying to get together and organize these big national events. Um, and I think it's part of the reason that uh, extremist movements have, you know, tried to decentralize from national organizing and push into these smaller uh, localized activism spaces where maybe there's less knowledge about uh, what their groups are or and less resources to combat them. How worried are you about a coup, given what you're reading and hearing and seeing on the internet? You know, all the research and analysis in the world can't predict the future, so I don't know if there will be another coup. Um, there, I, but I definitely think the threat to democracy in the U.S. is as pernicious as it was on January 6th. Even if we don't have people scaling up the side of the Capitol building, you know, there are, uh, you know, tons and tons of people being activated uh, across the country in smaller venues and working upward to, you know, kind of wage this fight from within the institutions um, and targeting these local institutions and really trying to erode the, the base that our democracy is built on. So I don't know if I'm worried about another 
coup per se, but I definitely, you know, would stress to people that if you love this country and you care about democracy, you have to be willing to stick up for it. And it's not a given. Uh, it is a, you know, multiracial representative democracy is not like a national order of the world. It's something that has to be fought for. And I guess what worries me most is, you know, this thought that maybe there's just this spread of like bystander effect that, you know, we've kind of watched this play out in slow motion for so long that a lot of us are just too tired or like worn out or jaded and cynical to feel like there's actually something we could do. That was Jared Holt, resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab and host of the Shitpost podcast. (laughs) Bottom line on this report, the threat of violence is diffuse but growing, and you see it in the polling in a recent Washington Post-University of Maryland poll. 34% of those responding said violence against the government could in some instances be justified, and 62% said they expect violence from the losing side in future elections. It is sobering. A reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. and got a lot of great content. And Jeff will be back in just a moment with a conversation about Russia, Ukraine, and the television show The Americans. Now, back to Joseph Weisberg. Joe Weisberg gained some well-deserved fame as the creator and principal writer of The Americans, the Cold War spy drama about KGB agents living undercover in the Washington suburbs. He knew something about that, having worked for the CIA himself for a few years in the 1980s. But lately, he's drawn notoriety and even derision, at least from some prominent CIA veterans, for a recent piece in the Washington Post that seemed to advocate appeasing Vladimir Putin's demands that the U.S. and NATO back away from Ukraine. So I called him up and asked him to explain himself. Joseph Weisberg, welcome to Spy Talk. I want to get to your book, which traces your journey from cold warrior to an advocate for ending our conflict with Russia. But first, I want to ask you about yourself, which very much forms the heart of your book. Now, you were born in 1965. You grew up in Chicago. You are the son of civil rights attorney Bernard Weisberg and a former commissioner of cultural affairs for the city of Chicago, Lois Weisberg, ardent liberals both, I assume. You graduated from Yale in 1987, but three years passed before you joined the CIA. What happened during those three years? Jeff, it's interesting that you hone in on that period. I'm really asked about that specifically, but I find in my personal life, I talk about it quite a bit because Hmm. it was that phase when I graduated college and didn't know what to do with myself. And I had decided, I studied Soviet history in college. And in my senior year, I started taking Russian language classes, but I almost failed the course because I just couldn't study a language while doing anything else at the same time. Mm. Uh, But I got kind of interested. And so I decided I would go out to Berkeley where they had a very well-known Russian language program and do that intensively for the summer. And I was the first time I'd really spent much time in California. And I sort of loved the West Coast. And I had a cousin who lived up in Portland. 
So I decided, okay, now I'm going to take the green tortoise bus. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it was a bus for hippies. It would take you <laughs> up, from, up and down the West Coast very inexpensively. I took the green tortoise up to Portland and I started studying Russian there at Portland State University and waited tables. Uh, and then I went on a trip to Eastern Europe with my brother and started seeing what that part of the world was like. And then I spent a summer in the Soviet Union and that really cemented my desire to kind of move in that direction professionally. Hmm. You didn't go into academia. Now, you chose the most cold of the Cold Warrior past to join CIA. What did you imagine that was going to be like? It's exactly what you said. I didn't go into academia. I did not want to sit behind a desk. I did not want to just think. I wanted to be a man of action. And that's what I imagined the CIA would be like. I wasn't quite, I knew James Bond wasn't realistic, but I thought maybe John le Carré was realistic. So I pictured it as something pretty close to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I remember Bob Baer, the celebrated former CIA operative, who said he joined CIA so he wouldn't have to sell cars or shoes or something like that. So it was more like you didn't want to do other things related to Russia. That seemed a good path and and pretty exciting. And you had no trouble getting in, I, I guess, despite your liberal background, uh, your parents' background. No, they didn't care at all really about politics. I think much of what they say about it being an apolitical organization is true. I was much more worried about my drug use because I had smoked a fair amount of marijuana uh, ah. after, after high school and <laughs> college. And they ask you very detailed questions about that when they're interviewing you and they give you a polygraph so you can't really lie. So once it came out that I had smoked pot about a hundred times, I thought that was gonna be it. But mm -hmm. in fact, they didn't seem to really care. And then I met many of my colleagues who had done a lot worse. Huh. And they and they ask you to promise not to smoke too much dope in the future, I guess. That's so, exactly right. Anyway, so uh, you were with the CIA just briefly, however. Tell us about your brief, brilliant career at CIA. Yes, my brief and not so brilliant career. I was there for about three and a half years. And uh, most of that time was in training. You know, the training program is, is pretty long and mine got extended even longer for, for various bureaucratic reasons. And so I did the training program to become a case officer, somebody who would go, go abroad and recruit spies. And then I was about to go on my first assignment and my father got sick. He had cancer and I took a leave of absence to help take care of him. And that was sort of it. I did go back for a summer after that, but my heart wasn't really in it anymore. Hmm. And, and so you spent three and a half years at headquarters? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you told a New York Times interviewer in 2013, many of the foreign agents they recruited, I did not see a single one that I thought was providing valuable intelligence to the United States. With case officers, it's their job to recruit. I was seeing that it doesn't work. Now, I was a case officer myself for my brief, brilliant career in military intelligence. I did run an agent who was... Uh, providing valuable intelligence on North Vietnamese uh, military movements. Now, so that's a pretty broad statement. So what gives you the basis to say that uh, they didn't recruit valuable agents? I do want to qualify it a, a bit by saying, you know, a valuable agent is in the eye of the beholder. So you and I, or me and anybody else could look at the same agent and have a different perspective about whether or not they were giving us anything of value. I think what informed my view was that even though I was really just a trainee, I did kind of these stints in at least three and maybe more different geographical parts of the agency. 
And in each of these several months long stints, I was exposed to a significant number of agents. And <laughs> in one of them, really a great number of agents is just because I ended up doing a, something called a file review. So again, a sort of bureaucratic uh, coincidence, but I ended up being exposed to a lot of cases. And the more I read them, regardless of what part of the agency I was working in, the more I wondered, hmm, should this person really be risking their life to give us this information? And I started trying to be specific about it. So I thought to myself, would this information actually change US policy? Would it have some sort of significant bearing on events? And also, is it really that different from what would be available in publicly sourced information? And mm. if the answer to both of those questions to me was no, then I was not so sure this was a, a valuable agent. But again, mm. that was you know my view, not a fact. So early on in your brief career, you became concerned about the risk that foreigners were taking to spy for the CIA or for the United States, I should say. That's exactly right. Nobody makes a secret of that or hides that. It's well, it's a well understood uh, part of espionage and certainly a well remarked upon and considered part of espionage within the CIA that you are taking other people's lives into your hands. I think my concern was that, first of all, there were sort of bureaucratic imperatives that people were very eager to advance their careers and to advance your career, you had to recruit agents. And sometimes that could start to loom a little larger than really being as cautious as one might otherwise want to be with someone else's life in your hands. Mm -hmm. And I do know, I, I can agree with you to a certain point. I do know of station chiefs who were notorious for numbers over quality. Um, Ted Shackley, the late Ted Shackley, was, was one of those as Saigon um, station chief. Uh, he wanted these, his guys out there uh, and gals, I should say, recruiting, 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 didn't matter much about the, uh, the quality. Uh, and that went on in other stations as well. Now, the Americans, every, I think almost every listener we have here today uh, knows of that fabulous TV show you created and ran for several seasons. The guiding idea behind that was that the Russians who were living undercover in America were just ordinary kind of people with ordinary concerns. Did that idea grow out of your, your empathy for foreigners who agreed to commit treason and spy for the United States? I would say, I wouldn't put it like that. No, I, I would say there were two things. One was that, you know, as I'm sure you remember well, in 2012, a group of Russian illegals were arrested. Your listeners are familiar, I think, with, with what illegals are, and you just described it also. Uh, and like a lot of people, I was maybe a little surprised, not shocked, but a little surprised that the Russians were still using that uh, type of cover. It really seemed like a relic from the Cold War when the KGB sent deep cover spies to the United States and other countries as well. And now that we weren't in the same kind of conflict with them, it seemed sort of shocking that they were expending those resources and, and taking those risks to spy on us. And also it seemed very curious because it didn't seem these people had too much access to anything that was that was really interesting either. So I got very interested in the fact that that was still going on and in learning more about it historically because I had been, you know, I knew a little bit about KGB illegals, but not a lot. So that was very interesting. The other thing that had happened is that before that, I had started having a sort of change of heart about the Cold War. 
And I had stopped seeing it in such black and white terms. And I had stopped believing that we were the good guys and they were the bad guys. I thought it was much more complex than that. And I started to believe in the idea that there were KGB officers who were, you know, perfectly, perfectly good people and not that much different from me. So the idea of sort of basing a TV show on KGB officers who we could all relate to was very appealing to me. That's a theme, of course, that you drive home in your new book, Russia Upside Down, an Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War. And it's a theme you distilled in a very provocative Washington Post piece. It led the Sunday opinion section a couple of weeks ago. Did that idea come from the, well, you credit psychotherapy with loosening your rigid thinking and you say a memoir by former KGB spy handler, Victor Cherkashin, opened your eyes to a realization that, as you put it, the KGB was far more similar to the CIA than I ever imagined. Now, I suspect that you are right, that the KGB officers arrayed against the United States and other countries are have very similar concerns as we do. Uh, same with uh, Chinese intelligence officers. They have families, they have children, they have ordinary worries, they, they want to get ahead. Um, that's the principal thing that drives most intelligence officers as it does uh, people working in any other industry that they just want to get ahead. So I can see that. But isn't there some difference between working for a totalitarian power than for the which does not share the ideals, the ideals that we express? Uh, you know, aren't they aren't they very different because of who they work for? I have to give you a, a sort of a two part answer to that. Uh, one is that if we were talking about NKVD officers during the Stalin era. I would say, yeah, boy, that's awfully different. That, that system that they're working for is so bloody and so brutal and, and so sick that of course there is, a, there is a fundamental major difference. But in the post-Stalin era, I wouldn't describe the Soviet Union anymore as a totalitarian empire. I would describe it still as a you know, heavily repressive state with all kinds of problems and all kinds of uh, political actions and activities that I think are reprehensible. Um, but it wasn't all bad. It also had some a lot of popular support. It did a lot of things for its people. It did fundamentally care about its people. Its sort of general communist ideals uh, were, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. They were another way to sort of approach the world. And at the same time, I don't think we were what I thought we were when I was younger, which is a bright, shining light unto the nations, ready to bestow democracy and freedom to all. I think we were more complex than that ourselves. Everything I just said, if you sort of took the irony out of it, we have elements, had and have elements of that. We have a really, like, the, a, like a, had a world-leading free press. I'm not sure if we still do, but we probably to some degree still do. We had a kind of openness in our society that is, I think, really commendable and, and vital and I'm, and has so shaped everything that I am and I'm enormously grateful for. But we also have a, a legacy of, of, you know, slavery and racism and destruction of Native Americans and, and on and on and on, all kinds of problems we've got. So if you see it more as two countries that have plenty of good things about them, plenty of bad things about them, but they aren't the same good and bad things, 
then I think it starts to look a little different and, and a little more like somebody as an intelligence officer could serve either country while telling themselves they were doing the right thing. Mm. Uh, you've come in, uh, come in for some withering criticism, as you know, from former CIA officers, especially people like John Cipher, who uh, served in Moscow, uh, who accuse you, if I can sum it up accurately, is, is uh, uh, incredibly naive to think that uh, we should uh, take uh, various uh, actions to um, really appease the Russians, to calm them down, to give them breaks here and there. Um, what do you say to that criticism? It comes down to a little bit, I think, of your perspective and, and everything that's going on right now in Ukraine is, is a, almost a perfect opportunity to explore some of those questions. So if, like many of the people who have criticized me, you say, look, the Cold War ended, we won it, we had every right to start sort of expanding NATO to the East, those countries were independent countries and they have a right to do whatever they want. If they wanted to be in NATO, we wanted them in NATO. If Russia has a problem with that, that's just because they're a repressive country that doesn't respect the independence of other countries. I get all that. I, I, I do understand that. I don't think it's a, a crazy perspective, um, but I think it is missing something which is that even though there is truth to all of that, it is also true that Russia, like us, and like pretty much any other big country, does politically feel that it should have some influence over the countries around it in order to defend itself. We, of course, have a very long history of interfering militarily and otherwise in neighboring and not even neighboring countries in Latin America because we feel threatened if somebody comes too close. So for Russia to say, a defense alliance formed to essentially combat Moscow should not be coming closer and closer to them, that that's going to intimidate them and scare them and make them unsafe, seems relatable to me. I think mm -hmm. that's a reasonable point, and I don't think it should be dismissed because we don't like their style of government. Well, I agree with you uh, to a large extent. Uh, in fact, we ran a piece by one of my uh, most valuable contributing editors, Jonathan Broder, arguing much the same that if Russian, uh, if the Russians gained a foothold in Mexico or Canada, we wouldn't stand for it. And in fact, if you look at 1962 in Cuba, we made, we made it uh, absolutely clear to the Russians that they could not have missiles in Cuba and we forced them to get out. Um, so there is a point to be made. And, and uh, Broder also said in that piece that uh, the, the uh, elder Bush uh, and his administration had uh, promised Gorbachev that we would not add uh, Eastern European countries that were formerly part of, part of the Soviet Union to NATO. And in fact, we went ahead and did that. So we reneged on that pledge. Um, and we have left the door open uh, for Ukraine joining NATO. And Ukraine uh, points right into the belly of Russia. So they have reason to be uh, alarmed about that. And uh, Russia has suffered uh, a number of foreign invasions going back to Napoleon and, uh, and the Crimea uh, campaigns of the mid 19th century. Uh, of course, the Nazi uh, Hitler invasion in uh, 1941 and so on. So they have reason to believe it. I don't mean to take to your thinking out of thing away from you. I'm, no, I'm just please. agreeing with you <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. On, on that point. Then again, we have Russian behavior 
Soviet behavior, invasion of uh, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and since the Soviet dissolution, we have Georgia in 2008, and of course, constant pressure and invasion of Ukraine not so long ago, and a threat to do it again. So this is really belligerent behavior that seems over the top. Um, and you say, right at this time when the, when the Russians are massing troops, over 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border with tanks and artillery, that this is the time to make a deal with Russia to be kind to them or to understand them more? That seems a bit jarring to me mm -hmm, and to mm -hmm. many others. Yeah, yeah. You know, you list the actions, the countries they've invaded and, and, and really some pretty awful things they've done. And I often think it's important for me to slow down and, and say that I concur with the most negative judgments about those things. So in trying to understand it or to think about ourselves and how we act, it is not in any way to diminish uh, crimes that they have committed or inexcusable political or military actions they've taken, but rather to shift the lens a little bit and say that we did what we did in Vietnam, we invaded Vietnam, we invaded Afghanistan also, we did all the damage we did in Iraq. Uh, it, you know, the excuse that you remember as well as I do from the Cold War period was that we were spreading freedom and democracy, they were spreading communism, so the damage we did was okay, or at least more under justifiable, and theirs wasn't. I don't believe that anymore. It, it didn't spread democracy or freedom, it just, it just did the damage. And if you get into what we've done, you know, more recently in the Middle East, it didn't, although it still had that veneer in our own minds, it's hard to believe that we ever believed that. I, although I know we did, I'm not really trying to be that, that skeptical of it. So I guess what I would say is, yes, this is a dangerous moment. And I'm not trying to defend myself, but I was suggesting that we try to take a sort of more understanding conciliatory attitude towards Russia before the current Ukraine crisis. So it's really more that I don't think that changes anything. I don't think, in, in fact, I would go a little further and say, because they may be on the brink of the next catastrophe, the most important thing is to see if we can shake ourselves out of the usual attitudes that seem to promote that kind of, I'm not trying to hold us responsible. We're not, they're responsible for what they do, but we are responsible for whatever role we do play. In this mm. case, for example, increasing their feeling of encirclement and isolation and threat. And that's something that we could really respond to and at least give them the opportunity to feel that we were willing to take their concerns into account. Mm. I don't know sure. what that would, I don't know what would happen. I'm not naive enough to say that means they will not invade Ukraine. I only think it's a possibility. Worth and if they did? Well, if you, part of the problem is you never know what would have happened the other way. So sure, it's possible that they will invade Ukraine no matter what we do. It's possible that if we uh, listen to what Putin is saying right now and try to beat him halfway or even more and take his concerns into account, that he will anyway. And I think at that point, we would have to say, you know, that was ineffective. Mm. I, I can't quite see a scenario in which we would invite further military action by trying to listen and be more responsive to their concerns. That's the appeasement argument, which I think is a little bit just a constant rehash of a half-learned lesson from World War II. Hmm. Okay. This is spy talk, so let's go back to the spy side of the business. <laughs> yeah. There's a, 
of many, many countless wonderful scenes in the, the Americans. I mean, I became a big, big fan. You have Philip Jennings, the uh, Soviet, the KGB officer saying to his wife, played by Carrie Russell and another great performance. We believe in something so big we do that we, we believe in something so big we do what they tell us. But it's on us, all of it. And that's followed by scenes of wicked violence by his wife, who's murdering people left and right, which doesn't really happen here. Uh, but your point seems to be that these are bad guys that uh, at least momentarily you're saying, well, look, you know, let's not fool ourselves. These guys are murderous thugs when it comes down to it. Were you trying to say that? I think, well, first of all, I'd like to point out, I, I you know, made that show with a lot of people. I'm not the sole uh, author of that show, but I will tell you, nevertheless, there are things that I did mean by it. And, and what I meant by that is, no, I meant that they're both and we're both. <laughs> mm. And it's very easy in this world to behave at one moment like a murderous thug, at the next moment like a compassionate person, and to tell yourself a story that sort of justifies the murderous part. So the post-Soviet Russia is sending assassins abroad to poison uh, its dissidents and defectors. Uh, there was another accident in Berlin recently, a guy falling up yet another window. So Russia uh, under Putin is very active in assassinations. So doesn't that tell you something about the character of Russia today? Uh, uh, that it's not a state to be uh, uh, trusting or making deals with? Uh, I think it tells you something about the character of the state and leadership. I don't think it is necessarily that you couldn't make a deal with them or trust them under any circumstances. Uh, what it says to me is that they are willing and able to take a very drastic, immoral, uh, inhumane action, um, often in response to you know, a kind of grievance that is hard for us or me to even quite fathom, um, that they are intolerant of dissent and, and insecure in certain ways and, and want revenge. So it says a lot of uh, very negative and unflattering things about them. Uh, I would point out also that if you look, for example, we have obviously had a targeted assassination campaign against people who scare us, frighten us. I think there's much more justification on our part than on theirs for those feelings. On the other hand, if you look at the collateral damage done by our assassination campaigns with drone strikes and whatnot, it's immeasurably higher than the collateral damage of their assassination campaign. So it is not so simple to say that we are good and would never do that. And they are entirely bad because they do that. The actions are inexcusable but so are ours. And I think you could make a deal with us. And I think you could make a deal with them on areas of, of mutual interest and concern. Mm. It doesn't if, mean they lie about everything. No. No. If it, if you were to redo the Americans today, how would it be different? Um, you mean sort of just with the wisdom of more years passing, or you mean if it were because Both. now the era is different? Both. Well, you are different. Your views yeah. are different. Yeah. The era is very different. Yeah, um, yeah. So both. I'll say a couple of things. My views are not that different, really. I think that my views have sort of come to this point 
by the time I created that show, and it's part of the reason I created that show. And I did learn, I read about this in the book, I did continue to learn a lot more and sort of fortify my thinking based on storylines I was researching and whatnot. But, you know, the fundamental perspective that you could have human, decent KGB officers you liked, uh, I, I had already come to. What is totally different is the era we're in, because when we first launched the Americans, the Cold War seemed decidedly and you know, definitively over and things with Russia were peaceful enough. I mean, you can look back now in hindsight and see that they were, they were not, that they were <laughs> heating up and getting worse, but it didn't quite seem like that at the time. It seemed like, it seemed like we were doing mm -hmm. okay and would not be returning to this level of conflict. And the show was built for that. The show was built around the idea that Americans would be open to the idea of sympathizing with somebody who had been a KGB officer. I don't think I could make that assumption now. I, I think now the level of hostility to Russia is so great that I don't think I could have conceived of the show. What about a series dramatizing the life of CIA officers abroad and living undercover like their Russian counterparts that you portrayed in, in The Americans? It's funny you say that. My partner Joel and I, who you know, we ran that show together and, and wrote a lot of episodes together, and uh, we used to do this test when we had written a story for Philip and Elizabeth, and we were unsure if we had gone too far. We would say, "Well, what if this was a show about CIA officers undercover in Moscow, and they did this exact same thing in order to, as they believed, to promote their national security? Would would Americans still support them? Would Americans still consider them heroes?" Uh, and so, so we ran that test all the time. It's interesting, by the way, the Russians do have that show. I don't, I, I don't think it's making new episodes anymore. I don't know how long it ran. And they did it as a comedy, which might have been a good idea. <laughs> yeah, the Cubans did a drama, a TV, very popular TV series. Of course, you don't have a lot of channel choices in Cuba, but they did a, <laughs> they did a drama about uh, their agents operating in America and uncovering CIA officers in, in Cuba. It was very very successful. It was pretty amusing, actually, um, and, and well done by their standards. So you'd have a hard time. Uh, First of all, if you created a, a, a version of, of CIA officers like you did the Russians, um, they wouldn't be committing murder and mayhem like you had uh, the, uh, the uh, Russians here doing. Well, they would, Jeff, for the same reason that the Russians did it here, which is to create a little more uh, TV drama. Well, yeah, you created it. <laughs> In fact, let, you have to confess. Let's, I'd like you to confess to everyone right now that none of that stuff took place confessed. in reality. Confessed, confessed, fully okay. confessed. Yeah, uh, There was a very suspicious death of a Moscow, uh, an unreliable Russian in a Washington hotel a few years ago. It still remains uh, to most of us who follow this stuff is very highly suspicious. It smacks of an assassination. But generally speaking, uh, the whole point of the Russians being undercover is to stay undercover and murders tend to be solved by the police. So, yeah, that's right. And, you know, back in the back in the Cold War era, uh, part of the reason they were being put there was also in case a hot war broke out that they could then turn into behind enemy lines agents. And in that case, there actually might have been some murder. But uh, you're correct that that did not happen. And also, 
um, you know, it's rare for a CIA officer to meet his Russian agent inside Russia, as you know. It's just too dangerous. Uh, the Soviet Union may be gone, but the totalitarian apparatus is not gone. It's just too dangerous. So the idea of Americans living uh, uh, under uh, unofficial cover as business people living uh, ordinary lives in Moscow or whatever, uh, St. Petersburg is just out of the question. I mean, it, it may exist. Uh, hats off to the CIA if they've pulled it off for any uh, period of time, but highly doubtful. Um, so what's next for you, Joe? Uh, my partner, Joel, and I are working on a uh, TV show um, about a therapist and a serial killer. And we're going to actually, uh, COVID allowing, we're going to start shooting it in about a week in LA with uh, Steve Carell starring as, as the therapist. So that's the, that's the next big project. Uh, there are no spies in it, obviously, but uh, there's some therapy, another, another good theme. Yeah, I was going to say that cuts a little close to home too. You say <laughs> you're, you're evolving views. Your radically evolving views, I might add, on the Russians uh, was a product of your therapy, uh, so, and and the Russians are uh, considered serial killers. So, hmm, there you go again. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> anyway, thanks for spending this time with us, Joe uh, Weisberg. It's been great to have you. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back again. Thanks. It was a pleasure, Jeff. Great to talk to you after such a long time. Once again, that was Joe Weisberg, the author of Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War. Interesting, Jeff, that uh, he and Jonathan Broder were in such agreement over the situation in Ukraine. Jonathan was on just a week or so ago to talk about this. Yeah, well, there are legitimate issues evolving around Russia's sense of uh, insecurity over uh, its uh, opponents or enemies creeping up closer and closer. So Jonathan Broder and Joe Weisberg just wanted to point that out. Where they go next, if Russia invades Ukraine, is another question entirely. Of course, we have the talks coming up just in the next couple of days, and we'll see what they produce or, or don't produce. Mm, dangerous time. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and listen to every single episode. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at... At Spy Talker. And of course, our Spy Talk page is at talk underscore spy. Thanks for joining us once again for another edition of Spy Talk. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Stay healthy. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.